actually, so where's the young lady that's the waitress in, uh, where, where, what town is it that you waitress for 23 years? Yeah, Toledo. So she tell she said she waitress for twenty three years, and she told me that last night. I said, so, like, how often do you have a rude, a rude? Okay with this, brother? A rude customer. And she said every so often. Then she said, you know, the twenty three years she probably has more. She said, uh, we had a truck driver that came in pretty much every day. Very rude. So all the waitresses got together and said, let's basically kill him with kindness and also being super nice to him. He was still rude, but eventually their influence, him, at least he started saying thank you and please. And so I thought, you know, that, that stuff happens. And many of you have stories. So I appreciate the emphasis this week to you as laymen that you would be constantly encouraged by this because your influence does have influence. I could give you a hundred examples. I think of... Kip and Mary Jane, who who uh, was on island, his dad in Guam, uh, for like 20 years. He's Howley. She is uh, Filipino. And we had an academy, so their kids were in our academy. It's a Christian academy, not a Christian school. So you don't have to be a Christian to go to this academy of a 1,000 kids. And so they put their kids there. And then their dad, who's from Montana, visited them, came over and saw me, introduced himself and said, my son Kip grew up in the Christian uh, um, community in our church, and for the last 20 years, I just don't know whether he's saved or not, would you reach out to him? So over a year, uh, I mentioned a couple of the guys, they reached out to him, developed a friendship, and eventually uh, um, I got to know him, and through that, they had some difficulties and felt comfortable. He came and we chatted, and out of that, he started up coming to church. Kip was the uh, president of the Harley-Davidson Club. And so eventually, um, he kept growing in his interest in faith, and, and um, we had somebody in to uh, preach, and it just was a real turning point for him, for Mary Jane. And Mary Jane had grew up Catholic, but had come to Christ, led by missionaries in the Philippines. And he um, had made a profession at a cowboy camp at 18 years old. But he said, for 20 years, I just walked away from the Lord. But I realized that that was really my point of, of conversion. Somebody said, it takes a moment to become a Christian. It takes a lifetime to become Christ-like. And I think that's true. Well, Kip ended up getting very, very involved in the church. About a year later, he said, hey, pastor, he said, we have people over from the church. And he said, I think it's time. I have a big kegger in the back that I used uh, for all of our biking um, social, event, <laughs> social events. I'm not sure that I need that anymore. I said, I think that'd be a good idea. I don't know that you need that anymore. And then he just kept growing in that. And he was one of the biggest witnesses to so many people um, I think that, Mike, you mentioned somebody that kept inviting people, um, and that's exactly what Kip did. And Kip influenced a guy named Lou, and Lou didn't want anything to do with Christianity because he thought we we're all after money, and eventually Kip got Lou to come visit. And Lou came once, and, and others went around Lou, and out of that, Lou ended up coming to Christ, got his wife married to come to church. Her name also, and a Filipino lady, she eventually got saved. And Bible study, two or three, four years, and he went, went over to the master's a few years ago and got his M.A. 
and looking to do ministry full-time. This is how it rolls. It's not that complicated. So your testimony is incredibly important in things that happen. And so, so in the time we have, that in essence is what John is penning this third letter to on a very personal note. Because we're influenced by our world and events that go on. Would you agree to that? Let's talk about these five tweets here. And um, I'll save my awesome video for tomorrow. You don't want to miss it. It's a good one. So here's five timeless texts to his followers. So let's back up here. Do I have that slide, Noah, on the other four that we, we uh, reviewed? Because my brain is a little slower. There's is quite. We did talk about Obadiah. We talked about Philemon. We talked about Second John. Okay, here you go. So these were kind of the big scope about this here. Um, what in the world's going on? Big idea of God's sovereignty in Obadiah. Talked about how do I deal with failures as far as Philemon is concerned. And then um, we talked about yesterday about the church and relationships within the church. And so this is John now who uh, wrote a, outside of the Synoptic Gospels, wrote in a whole view and narrative of who Christ was, and that whole terminology that stuck with John for a very long time. So here he's now writing anywhere between 30 to 50 years, depending on who you read. Now he's writing an old age, and he's approaching one lady and her family in a church, and then he jumps to this third John, and he talks about church relationships, and he gives us a picture and a portrait of what the church was of the day. Now, we have a tendency when we read the Bible to just kind of narrow down to this is the text and this is what's happened. It's not a problem. But you have to understand there are world events that influence the church in their day just as world events affect our church today and decisions that are made that eventually trickle down and influence all of us, particularly today, may I add. So that was the case with John. Somewhere, if that was written in, in 90 or so, there were big events that were happening. In our globe, big events were happening. It wasn't just everything was happening in the Middle East. In China, the Han Dynasty started, which was a huge dynasty for centuries. And the guy that was over, over all of China at the time was a military emperor that had a huge influence. And that exact time, in, in between 85 and 90, um, Germany had been conquered by Rome and their new capital, Cologne. At the same time, uh, you end up having in the Middle East a guy named Nero that had died and the Flavian dynasty started. A guy named Vespasian, who was a military genius, he ruled for a few years and then he had a son named Titus. What happened in 70 A.D.? Jerusalem was destroyed by Titus. Horrible things happened to um, the Jews that were fleeing that area. I mean, it was so bad that the Jews were swallowing their gold and, and the Roman soldiers had freedom if they thought there was something inside of them to rip them open to get the gold. And eventually, of course, they burned down the, the, the temple and that was the destruction that Jesus said was going to happen. All this was going on at 70. Titus moves off the scene, and his brother takes charge, Domitian. And he, he himself was actually, they're all bad. 
as far as Caesars are concerned. But he basically leveraged Rome to a place that the Senate didn't have much power, so he kind of dominated. He actually helped the Roman Empire as far as uh, solidifying Rome and the finances and all that happened. He was a military genius. But all of that also, he kind of revived the Roman religion and tied it into Jupiter and the divinity of Jupiter that was on their family. So who was the big threat? The Jews were not a threat. But there was this place called the way or the name or the third wave called Christians. And he started putting pressure on them. And he's the one that really elevated the whole point of entertainment. And it wasn't the NBA or the NFL or World Cup or the Olympic Games. It was the charioteers and the gladiators. And it it was like fine-tuned. And that's where the persecution of the church became very strong. So John, who was in Jerusalem, kind of moved towards Syria, what we would know as Turkey, to the west, and was very involved with lots of churches, actually seven of them. So Rome, 5,000 miles away, knows about John. There were other writers, Arrhenius and Clement of Rome and, and Polycarp, They were very popular. They were all kind of saying the same thing, and and a couple of those were really being mentored by John. So John was like the man. So I give this as a backdrop to you, and it's important for you to know, because the influence of Rome and the government and the influence that they had pushed on John and the churches. This is why they had a whole network of communication they did utilize the Roman, what we would know as the Pony Express or the postal system that, that was very efficient. So the letter that John wrote and passed around was all through the, the Roman road system that didn't take but in between three to five days to get a, a letter from one end to the other. So it was very, very efficient. So this third letter was all about relationships because he had heard of a guy named... Demetrius, who evidently was going around preaching, and he had given a report. He himself had a very good report and gave it to John. John wrote this very personal letter, the the shortest letter we've got, the, the tweet as we've called it. And what did he say and why did he address, very short, three guys? This is the simplest outline you'll ever have. I'm like a bee that goes to a lot of flowers and picks up pollen and tries to spin my own honey. But this is like an old, this is an old outline, but it is, it's, it's just kind of like, here are three people that John addresses and probably a good schematic of what the church was. Not much different than it is for us today. He mentions three people, mentions three comments to them, give you a tape cone truth. So here's the three. Let's read this. Really not complicated. Let's read the letter. I'm going to give you these three, make comments about it, and hopefully it'll be a help to you. Because, I'll tell you why I'm saying this. Because today, I find that people's expectations of their church is perfection. And they want their church to be perfect. And they want their church to have no problems. And their expectation is so high that it's easy 
to bounce around, particularly if there's more than one church in your town, your community. And, and you end up having this constant swelling of some churches and then something happens and then they move away and move away. And I think the emphasis we're trying to make to you is the strength and power of your church are individuals. And, and so here are three. Let's read it. I'll make comment on the three. It's pretty, pretty straight up out of, the, out of uh, what the emphasis is. Notice if you would, and again, I'm reading from an old school, but I think it makes sense. He says, the elder under the well-beloved Gaius, here's your first name, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I wish above all things that you would prosper and in your health even as your soul prospers. I rejoice greatly. When the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, even as you walk in the truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, you, you have faithfully, whatever you do to the brethren, you've done to strangers. You've borne witness of the charity before the church, whom if you bring forward on their journey after godly sort, you're going to do well because that for his name's sake they went forth taking nothing of the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. Then he toggles to another name named Diotrephes. I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loved to have the preeminence among them, received us not. Wherefore, I, if I come, I'm going to remember his deeds, which he does, pratting against us with malicious words and not content therewith. Neither does he himself receive the brethren, and he's forbidding some, them, that would, and they're casting them out of the church. Beloved, fellow, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. Imitate that which is evil, don't do that. You imitate which is good. He that does good is of God. He that doesn't and does evil has not seen God. Then he mentions a third person, Demetrius. He's a good report of all men and of the truth itself. Yea, and we also bear record. You know that our record is true. And then he finishes verse 13 and 14, the same way he finished in verse 12 and 13 on the previous letter, if I had many things to write, I'm not going to do it with ink and pen. Unto you, I trust I will shortly see you and will speak face to face. Peace be to you. Our friends salute you. Greet the friends by name. And the point is, there was a lot of difficulties going on in the outside world or influencing the church. Now you get the small glimpse of, in the church, some difficulties. And so here's the big uh, statement here for Third John, and I pretty much vocalized it. In First John, the apostle discussed fellowship with God. Second John, he forbids fellowship with false teachers. And in Third John, he encourages fellowship with Christian brothers. It's the, it's the idea of family. It's these terms of endearment, of beloved and beloved, and I love you, and this whole atmosphere that's super healthy. One author said it this way about this letter. He said, many read the New Testament and get the impression that the first century was Edenic in garden spot in church history. However, as we journey back in time, 
the travel brochures of the New Testament depict quite a different setting. There was the scorching heat of persecution accompanied by the lies and the ants of heresy that needed constant swatting. And like sand in your bathing suit, there's always abrasive people in the church who got under your skin or rubbed you the wrong way. It was not the garden spot we like to imagine. And as we turn the postcard of 3 John, because that in essence would be the old school postcard, but to the tweets, he gives vivid color pictures of the New Testament church in the first century. Possibly in the glossy finish of the picture, we'll catch this reflection of the church in the 20th century. So here's your three men, and let me just give you the outline straight up. It's in your book. I think it's page 14. Here's your three. First of all, he talks about Gaius, and he gets a commendation. And then secondly, he moves, and, and he was very pleasing, and go ahead and keep rolling with this, Noah. Then you move to Diotrephes. He received criticism. He was very proud. Then he moves to Demetrius. He received a compliment. He was very profitable. If you like alliteration, you have uh, a Gaius who, who was the exhorter. And, and, and here you have John who's exhorting Gaius like, Gaius, your, your testimony, your reputation is unbelievable. And John's using this terms again of love and truth as he did in 2 John of truth and love. There's this whole relationship and the idea is being in the truth. The common phrase in this day, by the way, is verse 2, and their point was, we know your soul's healthy, we hope your body is just as healthy. Pretty common, which is a basis, by the way, that you're not unscriptural if you take one of you, part of your prayer time to be praying for people physically. I don't think that's like unspiritual to do that, by the way. And then he does mention again in verse 3, your testimony, you are testifying your own life of this truth. You are walking in the truth. Verse 4, you're walking in truth. John, when you you squeeze John and Jesus' words are going to come out of him. So when you read this, and then you go back to, fact is, take just a moment, I think we've got time here, look at John 17, one of the last phrases that Jesus made to John and the other ten apostles, disciples, and he summarizes what he had been saying to those apostles that here's John, the last guy standing in John 17, verse 26, and I have declared unto them thy name and will declare it that the love wherewith you have loved me may be what? In them and I in them. He's referring back to 21, that they all may be one. Father, you are in me and I'm in you, that they also may be one in us. And that preposition, that in, is constantly being used, that phrasing. Uh, Paul uses it in Colossae that, that he is in me. So when, when John uses this term to Gaius, you are walking in the truth, its idea of obedience, the, the tense is a continual actual activity 
but you're walking in truth. And who is actually the truth? You move from some doctrine that John had a personal contact. Now follow me. It is in truth. Jesus said, I am the way the... So John is saying, you're not just walking in obedience to the Scripture, but you're walking in Him because He is in you. And of course, he introduced in this same in John 13 to 16, the Spirit of God that is in us as a comforter. He's the ultimate encourager. So when you find you are in Christ, He empowers us by the Spirit of God so it's not you trying to do things, but allowing Him to do it through you. Now, I don't want to get too mystic about it, but I, I want you to understand this is the emphasis of John that's saying to, to Gaius, this is why that relationship as, as the uh, God the Father and God the Son, and they're in us, and that Jesus Himself, by the Spirit of God, is in us. Let me illustrate this way. I, some of you have had bad hearing, and I've commented to cover you that back in my 50s, um, I, I, I ended up wearing hearing aids. I had one, then I had two, and my hearing continually decreased. My dad had said, I have otosclerosis, and he had surgery, a stapendectomy, back in the 60s, when it was kind of the front end of it in L.A. at White House Surgery Center, and it didn't work, lost his hearing totally, and so this one he didn't do anything with, so it continually deteriorated. He had otosclerosis, the hardening of your middle ear, hammer, anvil, and stirrup. So he told my brother, two older brothers and me, this is going to happen to you. I hit my 40s, and my brother had that surgery. And he said, I'm never going to do it again because it whacks out your, your equilibrium. So, so my hearing starts going. I use hearing aids. My dad felt so bad that he, he bought them for me, and I'm like... You really don't need to do that out of guilt, Dad, but I'm glad you did because they're $2,000 a piece. So. And I couldn't really keep up with the counseling and hearing. You know, it was really hard. So I say this because my second-born daughter, Misty, who was pregnant with a second child, come to find out this is hereditary, and when you get pregnant, it gets worse. So Kevin, her husband, comes to me and says, I want Misty to get the surgery. And I was like, well, it's your wife, it's my daughter, and so you asked me, so I don't really want to do it because the risks are super high. He said, they're not that high anymore. So she went to Ronald Reagan, and, and they asked us to come and help with the other two kids. And, and so um, she had the surgery. And, and her hearing was like immediately better. And I'm like, okay. So Dr. Ishiyami is his name, half German, half Japanese, um, met me and said, let me see your, your reports because I think you, you, you qualify for this. And so six months later, I went and had the same surgery. And then uh, six months later, Missy and I both went and, and uh, both had the same surgery by the same doc on the same day. So here's what happens. He, he Within an hour or so, they take out your your stapes, and so your, the sound waves come into your head, and your middle ear bones vibrate and turn it into brain waves. That, that's, that's really a super layman's term. Because they start hardening so they don't vibrate, and you get no brain waves going in. Then that explains a lot of preaching, but you get the point. <laughs> so they remove this 
stapes, and they put in a small, like, one-millimeter piston, titanium piston, and they insert that. It's all laser. And uh, he said, I'm an ENT, but I'm a big E for the ear. That's all I do, 800 of these a year. This is all he does. And so uh, 10 days later, I was walking, actually, to a follow-up, and I was in L.A., walking down the street with my wife, and all of a sudden, that piston started moving. Amazing. Bam. My hearing went from like 20% to like 70%, and eventually 80 And pretty soon, I didn't need more hearing aids. Now, if you understand this in a measure, that's when he talks about being in Christ and Christ in you, that that little piece came into me and ignited my hearing so if you could think of, I don't want to go too far with this little story, but the metaphor of it is you begin hearing spiritual things. Why? Because Christ is in you. And if you don't have Christ in you, you could have all the preaching, amazing preaching, but you're not hearing it spiritually. So for all of us, when you hear spiritual truth, it's because Christ is in you. This is the idea that he's complimenting Gaius, and it's not just about Gaius and his own, but verse 5 to, to 8, he's, he's complimenting him like, Gaius, your commendation for what you're doing, you're a big encouragement to others also that are preaching. And Gaius, by the way, to the point that Mike's been trying to make, is not the preacher. He's a layman as far as we know. And he's a huge influence to the cause of the gospel, even those that were preaching the gospel. And, and so classic with John, he's so fatherly, he's so friendly in what he's saying, but then he gets really firm, and then he moves to Diotrephes. And he's not getting a commendation, he's like getting criticized, and he well so, because Diotrephes, you notice, he mentions these are the red flags of a Diotrephes attitude. He loves to have the preeminence. He wants to literally be approved to be first. It's the idea. He's an egotist. He's not the exhorter. He's the egotist. He probably was part of the pastoral staff, if not the pastor. And he was to the point that he was knocking down John himself. He said, I'm going to come, verse 10, and I'm going to remember his deeds, which he does. He's prating about, literally, he's talking nonsense. With these malicious and these hurtful words, there's no content to this. And he's trying to put him in his place. Here's how one author ended up saying, and I thought it was a good way to say it. He says, as time passed, a fissure ran through the church, forming a hairline crack between the leadership of the local congregation and the itinerant ministers. Eventually, the division became so great that a fault line formed. Tremors of resentment. Refused hospitality. They radiated from the local church's leadership. At the epicenter was a man named Diotrephes. John says this man loved to be in the center. First among them. This quake of rejection. He shook off John's teaching. He tried to bury the apostle in a rock slide of sharp-edged words. And he was in a place in which John describes Diotrephes as a man with an upside-down perspective of himself who loved to be first. He ran on a me-first, look out for number one program. You can bet he'll be the one pushing to get the best seat, not the one washing anybody's feet. 
And I promise you, if you have a difficulty in your church, the diatrophy spirit is there. The difficulty is, as John's trying to emphasize that even in the early church, and you put all the other letters together, what happens is logic runs over theology. And theology needs to control our logic. Logic says, hey, here's this church and these people getting saved, and boy, we need somebody to organize this thing, so they're like the most successful. I mean, look at their house, look at their business, and hey, you want to, yeah, I'd be happy to help you. You know, financially, we have a little bit of difficulties. Hey, I'll that's kind of what I do, and nice guy, and next thing you know, that logically, this guy should be in leader. Look at him, sharp guy, and man, he's got monies, and, and next thing you know, he's in charge. And often, that pride is just what dominates, and it's slow, but like this low-grade fever, you know something's not right. And the Spirit of God gets grieved. And all of a sudden, what happened to this fellowship? This is why John made a big deal about it. And rightfully so. And then he moves to, and he does mention verse 11. He has no problem with imitating. You just make sure and imitate what is good or godlike, not what is evil. And he's just saying, listen, this is just evil. This is what's hurting the church. And so this, these, these red, you want to talk about red flags? Man, there's this preeminent spirit, and there's those pratting words. These, why are they saying these things? And it takes time, because eventually he has a, a reputation that, well, he's a good guy, and I mean, look. But when you, when you, when you find hu no humility, and humility is the runway to healthy relationships. So when there's no humility, you end up finding uh, things that are quenched and, 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 um, and grieved. So I, I want to encourage you that when you look at these people, you end up finding that um, John deals with it directly. And, um, you know, somebody said light attracts bugs. And so if your church is the light of the gospel, it's going to attract some weirdness. And everybody's got, like I had an Aunt D and uh, uh, um, an Uncle Harold. Everybody's got an old weird Harold. Everybody's got a weird Aunt D. And, you know, like wrapping tissue paper around the, the, the the Christmas gifts. It's tissue paper. Like, I can see what's in there. And it's like, why aren't you thinking this? But So what happens is we want our churches to be like, everybody's just like us. And it's not to be. So whether John meant it or not, he kind of sandwiches in. He says, here's, here's Gaius. He says, here's this big problem. And then he moves thirdly to Demetrius. And what we were just talking about, testimonies and good reports, that's exactly what Demetrius has. He says, listen, you, you do have this good report. Yay, he says, we're, we're bearing record. We're testifying of this. You know that our record is true, so we're testifying of you. You're like the ultimate example. And he's elevating him, saying, this is really what we want you to have, and this is what we want you to do. And all of this is a part. 
And so this particular church has the same kind of difficulties that probably today your own church has this. And so the pastor is important to this and the deacons, or if you have elders, which is fine, but, but you can understand that within the church itself, he's primarily dealing with laymen saying, you have to have a right perspective and, and look at it the way you should be looking at it. So here's your take-home truths in the last few minutes. Obviously, number one, Third John is very brief. It has explicit themes. You're walking in the truth. He's not saying in the idea that your works are essential to living uh, faith, that you're maintaining your salvation is that that's Catholicism. You you don't have to you know put the two oars in the you know faith and works, and you got to keep doing these things. Works is a result of the work that's done in Christ. Number two, your works are essential to a living faith. This is the idea, of James. You're continuing in your steadfastness, and this is what John is trying to say. You be steadfast in this, and thirdly, you thank God for the family because it is your family. And your own family itself has problems and difficulties and issues, and so will your own local church. And thank God when things come along the line and uh, that you see God doing amazing things, you want to elevate that and say, God is working and doing it. And I appreciate the emphasis on encouraging you how to be a witness and testimony. And sometimes it's low-hanging fruit that happen. But most of the time, you are developing relationships. I mean, I went out to Guam in 2000, and some of you asked, by the way, uh, pause just parenthetically for one moment. I probably had eight people say, now, where do you work? So, um, <laughs> so I work at Faith Baptist Bible College, and I've been there for three years, so that's where we are currently involved. It's like the third missionary journey, Northland, Harvest, and now at Faith, and our, our new dean of students and his wife, Noah and, and Nikki Gephardt, are visiting with us today, so welcome to you guys. And so that's what I do. So when he first went out, the pastor, I'd been, I hadn't been there more than two weeks, and, and the secretary, Pam, said, uh, administrative assistant, that's what we call them now, um, hey, this guy calls from long-term care and wants somebody to come visit him. We have a guy named Pastor Joe Henson, did a lot of the counseling, and, and I said, well, have Joe go. He says, no, she goes, no, I think you, you should go. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I can, I can go over. So... So I show up, and here's this guy on the end of one of the uh, long-term care. So these are people that are in hospice or have, like they're not getting out. You know, end, end of the hallway, last room, and, and I sit down. Well, he has cancer. He has uh, throat cancer. He's smoked his whole life, and he's got a trach. So I'm kind of, it's really hard to understand him. And if you've ever not smelled the smell of death, when you do once, you never forget it. That's what he had. And, he, and so he thanked me for coming, and he said, what do I do with my sin? The doctors give me two weeks. I want to go to heaven. How do I get to heaven? You want to talk about low-hanging fruit. I'm like, this is my second week pastor. I'm like, well, this is awesome. This is easy schmeasy. <laughs> Not true. And so uh, to condense all this, uh, I said, well, who... Who visited you, and what did he tell you? Well, I had a pastor, and I had a priest. Both of them said, I can't tell you for sure, um, and you just hope that you did enough good works to offset your bad works. And he said, what do you say? I said, well, it doesn't matter what I say. So we go to the Bible. I walk through the gospel. Uh, I don't remember what I gave to him. There's lots of different options, but I walk through the gospel. He wanted to pray right then. 
He prayed, asked Christ uh, to forgive his sins, understood that, and, and uh, very sincere. Then he said, would you come visit me tomorrow? Yeah. And, uh, and so that began two weeks, visiting Chuck every day. By the end of the first week, I, I show up, and the lady says to me, are you the guy visiting Chuck down there? Yeah. She said, you know why he's in the hallway? No, because he is the worst patient we have. He is so rude. Said, I don't, she said, I don't know what you're telling him, but you keep telling him because he's the easiest guy that we have now. Best patient. I walked towards the room and there's this music coming out. Well, he, he found out we had a radio station, gets the radio from his wife, cranks it up so the whole hospital can hear about this thing. <laughs> and, and out of that, Chuck was so burdened. Please tell my wife, I've messed my family up. Please tell my, my, my kids. And, uh, and they came through and we talked and, and so eventually I got a phone call, two in the night, two in the morning, go over and check pass away. And he asked, would you please be a part of my funeral? Well, his wife's Catholic, you're all Catholic. His wife's Chukis, and eventually the, the funeral's two weeks later. And the whole Chukis community, basically they all end up coming and blah, blah, blah. There had to have been a couple, two or three thousand people. I just walked, I said, let me tell you what I told Chuck. Walk through the whole gospel. And I'm just thinking, you know, it'd be great if it was always like that, but it's not always like that. So over the years, you know what? Had some great Chucks, had some great Gaiuses, and great Demetriuses. But you know what? You always got a Diotrephes. Always. It's like the hair in the soup. It's like, really? Like, I don't, really, I don't want this soup. But, and guys that tell me, hey, it's been great, it's amazing. I said, have you ever had a Diotrephes? No, no, no. I said, I'll pray for you because you're going to get one. Because it's not necessarily the person, it's the whole attitude. So let me close with this in the last two minutes. So I like to read, read a lot of different books. One of these books is called Leaders Eat Last. Secular book by a guy named Simon Sinek. Some of you are business people probably familiar with him. He's on YouTube all the time. But a number of years ago in this book, Leaders Eat Last, he tells this true story about a former undersecretary of defense who gave a speech at a large conference. He took his place on the stage and began talking, sharing his prepared remarks with the audience. He, he pauses to take a sip of coffee from the styrofoam cup he, he had brought on stage with him. He took another sip, then he looks down at the cup and he smiles. He looks up and he says, you know, interrupting his own speech, I spoke here last year. I presented at this same conference on this same stage. Last year, I was still the undersecretary. I flew here in business class, and I landed. There was someone waiting for me at the airport to take me to my hotel. Upon arriving at my hotel, there was somebody waiting for me. They had already checked me into the hotel. They handed me my key, escorted me up into my room. And the next morning, when I came down, again, there was somebody waiting for me in the lobby to drive me to the same venue that we are in today. I was taken through a back entrance, shown to the green room, and I was handed a cup of coffee in a beautiful ceramic cup. But this year, as I stand here to speak to you, I'm no longer the undersecretary. He continued, I flew here coach class, and when I arrived at the airport yesterday, there was nobody there to meet me. I took a taxi to the hotel, and when I, 
<laughs> and when I got there, I checked myself in. I went by myself to my room. And this morning, I came down to the lobby. I caught another taxi to come here. I came to the front door, found my way backstage. And once there, I asked one of the techs if there was any coffee, knowing there was. He pointed to a coffee machine on a table against the wall. So I walk over. I pour myself this cup of coffee in this here styrofoam cup. And he raised his cup to the audience. And he said, it occurs to me, the ceramic cup they gave me last year, it was never meant for me at all. It was really meant for the position I held. I deserved a styrofoam cup. And I would say as a believer that you are the styrofoam cup. You're disposable. We think we're the ceramic cup. What's this church going to do without me? What's this pastor going to do without me? If I didn't give this money, this church would be so hurting. And that so kills the spirit of Christ. And any successful ministry is soaked in humility. And that is the runway to happy, healthy relationships. God, thank you for your word, the truth of it. Help us as our burden and interest is the church to help churches, good churches just like this. And that really demonic spirit that's so spirit of pride. It sums up sometimes in, in uh, intelligence and, and information and we know more and we know more people and we know more things and we've traveled more places and none of that matters. Help us to have an attitude of a ceramic cup in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.